how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Numbers, part one. Strange title for a book, and of course in the Hebrew it isn't that title because they use just the first words of the scroll and the first words are the Lord said. So that's what this book is called in Hebrew. But again, when the Hebrew was translated into the Greek, they had to think of a new title, so they called it arithmoi. Well, you can guess what that word means in Greek because from that we get arithmetic and hence it became the book of Numbers. And I suppose it's called that because it begins and ends with numbers, with two census. I'm not sure what the plural of census is, so will sense I, would it be? I don't know. There were two censuses, one at the beginning of numbers and one at the end. And they were, of course, military census. They were for purposes of military conscription. And therefore they only counted the men over 20 who were fighting fit. And the number at the beginning and end of the book is around 600,000. That's how we know there were over 2 million people. If you included the women and children, uh, all under 20, then you come to a figure of 2 million plus. But 600,000 fighting men, I sometimes use this as a, a kind of ready reckoner for the strength of a church. How many men are there in this church over 20 who are able to fight for the Lord? It's not a bad test of the strength of a church. But uh, let's look at the census here. It, the first census in the first chapter is 603,550. That's when they left Sinai. At the end of the book, another census is taken and it's 601,730, which is a loss of 1,800. But you've got to remember that those two countings, those two numberings, were 40 years apart. Now the Numbers have proved a, a real talking point. It is the book of Numbers after all, which tells us that there's nothing wrong in counting. All fishermen count. And that's why on the day of Pentecost somebody sort of said 2,998, splash, 2,999, splash, 3,000. There's nothing wrong with counting. Shepherds have to count sheep, fishermen have to count fish. I'm sure you've heard of the one-armed fisherman who caught a fish that big, but anyway. <laughs> it's normal for fishermen and shepherds to count. Nothing wrong with counting unless you are counting for the motivation of pride. And that's when King David came unstuck. And King David counted his troops after he won the battle. He should have counted them before. Jesus said, no man going to battle doesn't sit down first and count his troops to see whether he's got more than the enemy. So they were counting their troops before battle and numbering the fighting men of Israel before they had to meet an enemy. Now many people say the number is far too large. They say the population under the moniker later was only 1,300,000. They say the population is said in the book of Deuteronomy to be much smaller than the Canaanites. So how big were the Canaanites? Millions. They say it's impossible for 70 families who came to Egypt to produce this many. They say it's too many for the wilderness of Sinai. There was no valley 
in the wilderness of Sinai big enough to contain such numbers. So there have been many, many objections, but we have the Word of God saying so, and once again you have to make your choice. Do you believe this or not? I believe God is perfectly capable of sustaining any number of people because he's God. Notice that it's such a similar number at the beginning and the end of the 40 years, only 1800 difference in 2 million or in 600,000 fighting men, whereas in Egypt they multiplied tremendously from just a few families to 2 million in 400 years. I know it's a tenth of the time but it's, it's not even a tenth of the increase. That tells us something. One tribe decreased by 37,000 but another increased by 20,500, so it evened out and they finished up at the end of Numbers with the same number as they had at the beginning. That tells us that God was not blessing them, for where God blesses, people multiply. If God blesses a church, it gets bigger. If he's not blessing, it tends to stay the same. Blessing of God is seen in fruitfulness and there's very little blessing of God in the book of Numbers. Maybe that's why we don't like it. But the point I want to make is this, the 600,000 at the end of this book are totally different from the 600,000 at the beginning except for two individuals. They have completely changed. Now, of course, in those days people didn't usually live beyond about 60, that was the life expectancy. Moses and Joshua after him lived to 120, that was incredible. At that time 60 would be about the life expectancy of a man and therefore 600,000 men over 20, 40 years later, have all gone. Only two survived, Joshua and Caleb. So that we don't realise when we read through a book like this you're covering 40 years more than a generation, generations reckoned at 30 years. So only two survived and this highlights the major tragedy of this book. I think this is the saddest book in the Old Testament. Now you may think Lamentations is pretty uh, grim but I think this is the saddest from the point of view of the story. You see two-thirds of the book of Numbers should never have been written two-thirds of the events described here should never have happened. They are not part of God's purpose. He never intended the book of Numbers to be written, but we have it because the Bible is a very honest book. So what has happened? The tragedy is that the journey from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, which is the first oasis after the Negev desert, the first sign of real life and the beginning of the promised land of Canaan, from Sinai to Kadesh takes 11 days on foot, that's all, less than a fortnight and they could have been living on milk and honey and, and not on what is it, manna. And yet we find that instead of 11 days it took 13,780 days to make it into the promised land. Now looking at the map, this was the direct route, 11 days, 
the route they actually took was to turn away from Kadesh and go across this deep valley, this rift valley that goes right down through Africa, the biggest crack in the earth's surface, and they crossed that into the mountains the other side, the mountains of Edom, and then they finished up in Moab on the wrong side of the river Jordan. Now if you look at the distance you'd have thought if that's 11 days then that's no more than maybe two weeks. But they took nearly 40 years, 38 years and a few months from there to there. Now why? Was it a particularly difficult piece of country? No. It was the fact that God didn't move and he only moved a little at a time and he stayed a very long time in each place and they didn't dare move if God didn't. The pillar of cloud stayed and he literally delayed their journey for 40 years and he told them why he delayed it. I am going to slow you up now until every man among you is dead except two, Joshua and Caleb. That's pretty tough and it meant that an entire generation was left doing nothing for the rest of their lives, getting nowhere, doomed to futility, which is a very tough sentence and we need to feel it. How would you like to be told you are now redundant until you die? There's nothing more for you to do. Just get up in the morning, go to bed at night, nothing, nothing to live for. Devastating. But that's what God did. Now what happened at Kadesh to cause that? Well, if you know, know your Bible, you know exactly what happened. They refused to go in when God told them to and they missed it. The tragedy is there are some opportunities in life, if you miss them you can never have them again. They come once and if you don't seize it then God may never give you that chance again. We need to take that seriously. How important it is when God says move, move. When God says go in and take something then go in and take it, otherwise you could spend the rest of your life in a wilderness getting nowhere. Horrible place to be because it's what the Yorkshire people say, it's neither Mount nor Summit. It's neither one thing nor the other. They were neither in Egypt nor Canaan and uh, that's why a lot of Christians, you know, are very miserable people because they're in between. They've got out of sin so they don't enjoy that anymore but they haven't got into the blessing that God has for them so they don't enjoy that either. And then nobody's so miserable as somebody who's got out but hasn't got in. And some people are stuck there for the rest of their lives and die in that miserable wilderness where there's just nothing really happening. Well, that's the tragedy. And two-thirds of the book of Numbers is about the journey from there to there, which need never have happened. And therefore the main lessons that we learn from the book of Numbers are negative. The Bible is a very honest book, thank God for that. It, it tells you not only about the great successes and virtues, it tells you about the failures and the vices. It tells you the things that went wrong as well as the things that went right. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians, talks about the book of Numbers and he says this, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting on our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings to us. 
Now, you couldn't have a clearer statement of the purpose of the book of Numbers. It may not be popular, you may not enjoy reading it, but it's terribly important because if you don't study history, you're condemned to repeat it. In fact, a friend of mine has written a little poem that goes, history repeats itself. It has to. No one listens. And there's a very real sense in which reading the history of Israel, if you read it properly, you will not make the same mistakes that they did. So it's a book about their failures, their follies, their mistakes, even Moses. Moses was not permitted to go into the Promised Land. Moses himself. He did get into it centuries later when he talked with Jesus, but he had to wait centuries to get into it because he too failed miserably at one crucial point, as we shall see. Well, now that's why we read the book of Numbers. I'm afraid we're reading it to learn from their mistakes and what went wrong and need not be written about us, but it could be. It's a mixture of narrative and legislation, but whereas in Exodus the first half was all narrative or story and the second half is all law, here it's all mixed up and it goes from a little bit of story to a little bit of legislation, back to a bit of story, back to legislation. Now the author of all the laws is not Moses but God. Eighty times in this book, eighty times, it says God said to Moses and that leads into law and legislation, the way that to live. The narrative, it says, Moses kept a diary, a journal of their travels at the Lord's command. He also kept another book called the Book of the Wars of the Lord and that was a book of all the accounts of the battles they had with other people, the use of those fighting men that they'd conscripted through the census. Now here is one of the five books of Moses and it's this complete mix-up between legislation and narrative. But before we look at that, let's see how it fits in to the four books that Moses wrote about events during his lifetime. Moses led them out of Egypt and all the way to the plains of Moab in the Jordan Valley, but on the wrong side of the Jordan. So this covers Moses' life and you'll see the book of Numbers covers a huge chunk of that. Probably the greatest part of their 40 years in the wilderness you'll find in the book of Numbers. Now notice the red and the green, the red and the green, the red and the green, the red. The red stands for the times when they were camped and stationary. The green describes their travels. So they camped and they travelled, they camped and they travelled, they camped and they travelled. Now the interesting thing is that all the legislation, the laws were given to them while they were camped and then all the stories of their travels show how they broke those laws. <laughs> so while they were camped and stationary, God told them what they should do, but while they moved, we have an, a story of what they did do, which was a little different from what they should. And so you have a kind of multiple lead sandwich. So in Egypt, the book of Exodus 1 to 11, they're stationary in Egypt. Exodus 12 to 18, they're moving to Sinai. 
Exodus 19 to 40, they're stationary at Sinai. Leviticus 1 to 7, they're still at Sinai. Numbers 1 to 10, they're still at Sinai. So all that is stationary and it's just packed with legislation. God gave them the laws when they were sitting still. So if you like, they were still to hear from God, and then they got up to walk in God's ways, only they usually didn't. But you see the difference between sitting and listening to God and then getting up to walk the way he told us to walk. Numbers 10 to 12 then, they're on the move again from Sinai to Kadesh, 11 days journey. Kadesh, the big crisis occurs and God speaks to them a lot at Kadesh from chapters 13 to 20. We're going to look at that very carefully. What did God say to them at Kadesh that was so significant? Then they're on the move again, Numbers 20 to 21, they're from Kadesh to Moab. Notice that that whole journey is covered only by two chapters. It really wasn't significant, wasn't important to God. Yet there are some things said in those two chapters we need to learn. And finally they settle in Moab and they've reached the very border of the Promised Land for the second time. They were at the border then but they didn't go in. They're at the border again now but now there's the Jordan in flood between them and the Promised Land. They would never have had that barrier to face had they gone straight in. And Numbers 22 to 36 are entirely what God said to them while they waited to go in. And the whole of Deuteronomy 1 to 34 belongs to that same stationary time again. So can you see that uh, Numbers has a lot of movement in it? Deuteronomy has nothing. Exodus has the first half. But there is this clear pattern when they were still, God spoke to them and said, now this is how you should live. When they got up to move, that's when they got into trouble and walked in their own ways instead of the ways of the Lord. So we have a lot to learn from all this. Let's look first at the legislation in the book of Numbers. That's not the less interesting, so I thought we'd take it first. And then we'll look at the narrative which contains some fascinating stories. But let's look at the legislation. And the first thing that hits us with the laws in Numbers is that these are not moral laws or social laws or what we call judicial laws, not criminal laws at all. Now in Exodus they were, but here they are mostly ritual laws, laws about worship. Now in the law of Moses all these different kinds of law are mixed up. They didn't draw the distinction that we draw between criminal law for the state and canon law for the church. They didn't have that kind of thinking. For them all of life was one whole and so moral laws and judicial laws and social laws and ritual laws are all mixed up. But we tend to compartmentalise life and we say that's criminal law and this is religious law. But they didn't do that. God was interested in all of life. And so 80 times God spoke to Moses, it says mouth to mouth or face to face. A very intimate phrase. God gave these laws very directly to Moses and Moses was face to face with God. We read that when he came back 
down the mountain. His face was luminous. It shone. The glory was still reflected in it. He had this intimate face-to-face -face encounter with God and God told him all about the construction of the tabernacle and all the rest of it and said, I'm now living among the people but there is one huge danger when God came down from the mountain to live in his own tent in the middle of the camp. The danger was that with God so near to them, people would take him for granted. People would become over-familiar with God. And when they became over-familiar, they would lose reverence and respect. God would be too near to them. They wouldn't feel the gulf between their sinfulness and his holiness. I think there's a very, very relevant message somewhere here that we need to listen to. When God is too near, we take him for granted. He's among us. Great. And we become over-familiar. And especially we forget his holiness. We think of his love and his compassion and his kindness and his goodness, but we overlook his holiness. And that's what, that's what makes him different from us. Well now, all the legislation in the book of Numbers, I believe, is given to prevent them from losing their reverence for God. And I'm going to classify it under three headings which we need to remember today. One, carefulness. Carefulness. Two, cleanliness. And three, costliness. And all the laws in Numbers can be put under one of those three heads. That when you have God among you, you need to remember first that you still need to be careful how you approach him. Second, that you need to be clean when you come to him. And third, that it is costly not to be holy yourself. Now let's look at those three things in the book of Numbers. First, when they were camped, they had to be very, very careful to camp in the right place around his tent. And this was the order that is given in the book of Moses. Each tribe had its own specific allotted place in relation to God's tent and the entrance to God's tent. And generally speaking, the most important place is right in front of the entrance. And the most important tribe was Judah. And Judah had to be directly always in front of the entrance to God's place. It would be from the tribe of Judah that later Jesus would come. Well, so Judah had to be here. Then the importance of the tribes is always in an anti-clockwise direction. And we notice this, but the four most important tribes actually had to be at the four corners, the other tribes in an anti-clockwise direction of value. There was an order, there was a hierarchy among the twelve tribes and God laid that hierarchy down. And he said it's very important that these four tribes guard the, they are the nearest on the four sides 
to the tent, one's at the corner of further off. But between all these twelve tribes and God's tent, there had to be, a, as it were, a barrier of Levites. And even among the Levites there were three sub-tribes or clans, and the different clans had to be in a particular position. Moses and Aaron and the priests had to guard the entrance, so their tents must be here. And of course there's the double entrance into the holy place and then the holy of holies, so God is protected by his people. Now the interesting thing is that archaeologists have found out how the ancient armies camped, how Pharaoh camped his different troops, his infantry and cavalry and so on. And this is exactly the military camp pattern of the ancient Egyptian army, which Moses may well have been trained in, in the university. But it's as if God is saying, my people are an army. And it's very important that the camp be rightly protected. And when the camp moved, it's fascinating, it's a bit complicated, you need to read it in numbers, but uh, some tribes had to go before God's tabernacle pieces were carried, other tribes had to go, but they sort of unpeeled like an orange and they marched in that order, following each other. So when they got to the camp it was simplicity itself for each tribe to stop and put their tents up. The whole thing is minutely detailed and who had to carry which piece of furniture from the tabernacle and who had to carry the curtains and what order they had to be carried in, everything was so detailed. Well now, why is God so fussy, so particular? Well, not only did, was it very efficient, as in all military operations, it was a very efficient way of camping, but he was saying, be careful, a careless attitude doesn't have a place in God's camp. Carelessness is a dangerous thing. If I can dare to put it in a modern word, casualness. Any old thing won't do for God, but we are becoming increasingly casual in our culture and increasingly casual in approach to God, even in such a little thing as getting started in worship. It can become so casual that you almost drift into it wondering when it started. Now I think in all this God was saying to his people, now be careful, God is in your camp. You should do things carefully, not casually or carelessly. And therefore there are some of the sins in Numbers which are really sins of carelessness. Carelessness on the Sabbath was punishable by death, just carelessness not deliberate sin, but carelessness. They were to have tassels on their clothes to remind them to pray. Vows had to be taken very seriously. If a vow was made to God, it must be kept. You remember there's a story in Judges of a man who vowed to sacrifice to God the first living thing that he met when he came home and he met his daughter. But a vow made to God must be taken seriously. There's one very interesting qualification of that in Numbers. If a wife makes a vow to God, then her husband has 24 hours to agree with it <laughs> or not. 
or not. I think that's important because there are so many Christian wives with non-Christian husbands, it's important. Just occasionally a Christian wife sends us a gift for our ministry, but I always ask, have you asked your husband first? Is he behind this? So important. So a vow made by a wife has to be ratified by the husband and there's a 24-hour cooling off period for the husband to agree with what his wife's promise to God or not. How careful all this is. Got to do things carefully with God. The second thing that comes out to me here is cleanliness. The camp had to be spotlessly clean. These were God's people. And so even such things as the sewage arrangements, careful detail, when you are emptying your bowels, take a spade with you and go out into the desert and dig a hole and then cover up your dirt. Keep the camp clean for the Lord. It wasn't just hygiene that God was interested in. He wasn't just doing this for germs. It was because he is a clean God and a clean camp is important. Can we put it a dirty, uncared-for church building is a bit of an insult to God. That's how he was teaching them to think. And so bodily discharges were a matter uh, for law uh, of whatever kind. And before they left Sinai, before they went towards the Promised Land, God insisted that they all had a bath, that they all cleaned themselves up. This, of course, is why in an older day people put on clean clothes for Sunday. See, Now, we're not under that law and so we're not under the law of Sunday clothes. Nevertheless, how we appear in worship betrays our inner mind. It says something. Do you see what I mean? And, of course, God looks on the heart and it's cleanliness of the heart that he's after now which is more important than cleanliness of the body. But I've noticed that uh, people who've really been in the grip of Satan often become dirty people. Have you noticed that? And that when they're converted and truly converted, without even being told, they start cleaning themselves up. It's just an outward expression of something that's going on inside. They realise that cleanliness is next to godliness. And it's all there in the book of Numbers. Keep the camp clean. And then costliness. For a sinful person to live close to a holy God is a costly business. And this costliness was expressed in sacrifices. And on behalf of the people, sacrifices had to be offered daily, weekly and monthly. There was a daily sacrifice here in the outer court on the altar. There was a weekly sacrifice and a special monthly sacrifice so that all the time when people realised they were losing their animals and that they were being sacrificed to God, that it was a costly matter. There's no forgiveness without blood being shed, said God. Forgiveness is very costly. Thank God it doesn't cost us anything because it cost him everything. But if we were still living in these days, it would cost us a great deal, our very best animals regularly and the priesthood had to be supported. And so the priests didn't have any livelihood and the priests and the Levites around here were supported by these tribes. The tribes paid for them to protect God's tabernacle. So it was quite a costly business. 
and it involved tithes and offerings and sacrifices. It was quite costly living with God in your midst. Now all this I think is saying something quite profound to us. From the legislation of numbers I get this. We've been brought up in a day which I would say is anti-ritual, which is becoming increasingly casual and careless in its approach to God. And the book of Numbers reminds us that that won't do, that we should approach God in the right way. Let me take one example. I don't have to bring a, a ram or a pigeon even or a dove to be sacrificed when I come to God, but that doesn't mean I don't have to bring a sacrifice. There is as much sacrifice in the New Testament as in the Old and I'm not talking about the cross now. It says bring a sacrifice of praise, bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now in what sense are these things a sacrifice? Well, how much did they cost you? Do you hear what I'm saying? Sacrifices were prepared for worship. Now we don't have to prepare a lamb, but we do need to prepare praise. And sometimes I cringe when somebody says, I haven't had any time to prepare, so we're just going to let the Holy Spirit lead us. And the results are not usually complementary to the Holy Spirit. We get into ritualism if we don't have a proper approach. I believe not that worship should not be prepared at all, nor do I believe it should be all prepared by one man, but I believe everybody should prepare for an act of worship. And I hope tomorrow morning Max will be embarrassed by the number of you who want to prepare a little sacrifice of praise or thanksgiving, a reading or a song. In the New Testament it says when you come together, each one already has a song, a word, a prophecy, a tongue, an interpretation. Each one has. Not each one might get if we wait, but each one has brought. Prepare a sacrifice and come into the courts of the Lord. That's what Numbers is saying. When you come to worship, come prepared for worship. It often takes us 20 minutes to get into worship because we're not even prepared. It costs to prepare, it costs you a bit of time, a bit of thought, but uh, it's costly to worship God in the way He wants. See, we've got into a state where I believe we want to worship God according to our taste instead of what will please Him, what I like. I prefer choruses, I prefer the old hymns. Both statements are quite irrelevant. What does God want? What will please Him? doesn't matter about my feelings in worship at all, it's whether God feels good. It's whether I've blessed Him. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And that's why He told them in Numbers, this is how you will bless me. This is how you worship me. Be careful, be clean, and it'll cost. But I'm a holy God living among my people and that is necessary. Well, when we come like that, our worship becomes a fragrant offering, says the New Testament, a good smell to God. In the old days God loved the smell of roast mutton. I do too. <laughs> but it was a sweet-smelling savour to Him and our sacrifice of praise can be pleasing to God. Letter to the Hebrews says, let us be thankful 
and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now you'd have thought that was from the Old Testament. It's not. It's from the New. Let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Well, we can get into disco worship and aerobic worship and all kinds of worship, but the important thing is how does God want us to worship him? And if there's one thing he makes quite clear, it is he wants us to be prepared to worship him, not just to turn up, but to come ready to offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Tomorrow morning we'll have a chance to do that. All right? Well, in the next talk we'll talk about the narrative section of the book of Numbers. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.